Is it Jesus? John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Is it Jesus? Who is, who was, and who is to come? And from the seven spirits who are before his, Jesus' throne is him speaking of Jesus. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church. Visit us at truthmatterschurch.org. As we continue our expository study in the book of Revelation, the text continues to surprise and amaze us. Today, Pastor Alex Cantaroja discusses the incredible truth that there is quite a bit more than meets the eye to chapter 1, verse 4, which reads, From him who was, and is, and is to come. What this passage reveals shows us so much about the richness and depth of the Lord's eternal plan. We encourage you to follow along in your Bible. Here is Pastor Alex. All right, we will continue our study in the book of Revelation. And the title of our study today is Him Who Is to Come. Let me ask you a question. Who's coming? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. So Him Who Is, Who Was, and Who Is to Come, is that Jesus? Okay. We, we will see. Uh, but before we, we pick right up in verse 4 of chapter 1, there are some loose ends that I want to tighten up from our last study. In our last study, it was titled, Blessed is He. And at least for the time that we had together, I really focused on the blessing being tied to a covenantal blessing or promise that God has entered into covenant with, like Abraham, David, and that he instituted a new covenant, the, our Lord Jesus, that is, instituted a new covenant in his blood that in, during that last supper. And that's all true. And sometimes I get ahead of myself because I, just like you, I want to get to the good part, maybe more of the, you know, really what's going to happen to the world. And we'll, we'll get there in due time. But I also want to tighten up this loose end that when, when it says, blessed is he who reads and heeds the words of the prophecy of this book, I do want to mention, it is also addressed to the direct recipients of this letter who will be there during the end times. So that would be the seven churches. Well, that one, the seven churches, is the first century church. That blessing would be applicable to them. But it also would be applicable to the 144,000 Jews that were sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. And it also applied to the two witnesses. And here's what I mean. And we're all familiar with the Hebrew passage concerning Christ. The Hebrew writer quoted a psalm quoting the son's conversation to the father. And what did Jesus say to the father? Here I am, O God, my father, to do your will as it, is, was written, as it has been written in me, of me in the scriptures. So, the Old Testament, for example, and the prophecies concerning Messiah, when Messiah was here, the Lord Jesus Christ was in the flesh, he read the scriptures, he knew the scriptures, and he says, I am here to fulfill your will, O God, my Father, that was written of me. So on that same kind of parallel, the 144,000 Jews, for example, they're going to be blessed when they read what was written in the prophecy and how they would be taken to safety. And on top of that, the two witnesses that will arrive on the scene, they're going to say, here I am, O Lord, to do your will that was written of me in the book. Blessed is he, and blessed is that witness 
two witnesses, in fact. So I do want to say that that is also important to remember when we're studying the Bible. Sometimes we are guilty and just want to make it applicable to ourselves. And, you know, that's good to some extent, but let's, in fairness, balance the Scriptures. Um, One other last example when we're talking about someone who you can say was blessed by what was written about them beforehand. And, and when we studied our visions of Daniel, and when their 70 years of captivity has been reached, and God prophesied when that time comes, he says he's going to raise up Cyrus, his servant, who was the Persian king. So in Isaiah 44 and 45... Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, prophesied that once Israel's punishment has been fulfilled, he will raise up Cyrus, his servant, to pretty much get the ball rolling and bring him back to the Holy Land. Isaiah prophesied that around, give or take, 700 B.C. Cyrus rose to power around 536 B.C. So 164 years later, could you imagine Cyrus being shown Isaiah, saying, oh, by the way, the God of Israel wrote about you, and he called you by name, and he called you his servant. And he says, you're going to be his instrument to bring his people back and give the command that they go back to the Holy Land. So in that same way, when it says, blessed is he who reads and heeds the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand, we have to keep in mind the intended recipients of this letter. And if you recall, and this is in one of our slides from our introductory studies, this letter was primarily written to his bondservants, and that would be the Apostle John, the believers in Thyatira, the 144,000 sealed Jews, the Old Testament prophets, two witnesses, prophets, Moses, a little clue there, glorified saints. So the audience of this letter, the book of Revelation, they're the primary recipients of this letter. So these will be blessed when they read and believe. So I just wanted to tie that loose end. There's there's a lot more that can be said on that. But I also want to balance our studies so that we can see Revelation in its appropriate context. Make sense? So with that, are we ready to pick up our, our study? We will read, we'll read verses 4 through 6, uh, but we'll cover verse 4 and part of verse 5. Uh, so let's, uh, let's pick it up, shall we? Revelation 1, I'm reading from the NES, and I'll read verses 4 through 6. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let's look at verse 4 again. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So at the beginning of verse 4, remember uh, remember the vision started with the Father, 
gave it to the son. The son gave it to his angel. The angel gave it to John. And John is now giving it, at least here, to the seven churches that are in Asia. And I'm going to be a broken record, but seven means seven. One of our rules of engagement, number seven, thou shalt not over-spiritualize the text. If you read a lot of commentaries out there, you'll hear some pretty neat stuff that says seven means completion, seven means this, seven means that. It's symbolic of this. Not to say that there's not any truth behind that, but in terms of when it says to the seven churches, and we are to be faithful to Scripture, it is written to the seven churches. Seven means seven. And at least the, the more immediate direct recipients of this letter are to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor would be modern Turkey today. So here's an example. So when you, when you read your Bible and you read Ephesians, the book was written to the believers in Ephesus. When you read Philippians, that letter was addressed to the believers in Philippi. When you read Galatians, that letter was written to the believers in the region of Galatia. That is no different in the book of Revelation. This letter was written to the seven churches that were existent, that were in existence that first century at the time of the penning of this letter. They're the direct recipients. So when it says to the seven churches, this is written to them. And if you read the scriptures, especially the Apostle Paul, for example, grace and peace to you, it is a common Christian greeting. And behind that phrase, it, it reminds believers of being recipients of God's grace and peace. Actually, it is good and healthy to be reminded of God's grace and peace, that we have his, we've, been, we've received His grace, and as a result of that, he has given us peace that transcends all understanding. That's part of the grace. But now what I want to do, um, well, before we get into kind of the main course, it says, you know, to the seven, uh, the seven, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits mean seven spirits. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's seven spirits. And spirits here is the Greek word pneuma, and pneuma means breath, but it also means soul or spirit. And it could mean a human spirit, it could mean an angel spirit, or it could mean the Holy Spirit, the Holy pneuma. So the context will tell you what spirit being is being talked about. And as we'll see, as we continue on our study, the seven spirits is going to refer to seven angels who are before the throne in heaven. Coincidentally, there's seven trumpets, and one angel is going to blow one of them. And there's seven bowls, and one of the angels will have a bowl to pour out on the earth. Seven spirits means seven angels, and We'll see that as we continue on in our study. And here's kind of an interesting, this is more of a side note here. You know, I don't think angels get a lot of love. Not that we are to worship angels, of course not. But they are God's angels. And they're his agents that do his bidding. But just know this, 
that this greeting, grace to you and peace, it's from the Father and the angels. The angels are extending this grace and peace from God. Here's one example. In the birth of our Lord, the news concerning the gospel, the coming and the birth of Christ. Luke 2, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid before behold, an angel speaking here, right? I bring you good news of great joy of which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Angels are bearers of good news. The the book of Revelation is also an extension of that good news in which the angels look eager to extend that to us. So just a little side note there of angels, but let's continue on. Now to the main course. From him who is and who was and who is to come. Now this time, I was curious to see what did commentaries have to say on this after I've dug and tried to stick to the scriptures. Here's what the consensus was. If you were to read the various commentaries out there, when they say, what do they have to say about this phrase, from him who is and who was and who is to come? The consensus, the majority, says, oh, it's, it's, a, it's a paraphrase of saying, I am who I am. You know how that, that the name, the proper name that God chose to reveal to himself at the burning bush? So they say, from him who is, who was, and who is to come is another way to say, I am who I am. That's the consensus. Or there's some variation of that. They'll say, it's another way to say, oh, the first, the middle, and the last. Or the alpha and the omega. Or that God is eternal. God is past, present, and future. And Jesus is past, present, and future. These are true. But here's my question. Who's him? From him, who is and who was and who is to come? Here's my question. Which person of the Trinity Is it Jesus? John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. Is it Jesus? Who is, who was, and who is to come? And from the seven spirits who are before his, Jesus' throne. Is him speaking of Jesus? Thankfully, thankfully, the next verse clarifies that, which is why I'm spilling over to verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the rulers of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And we will look at just and from Jesus Christ right now, that phrase, and we'll save the rest of verse 5 for our next study, or once we're done with this study. Verse 5 tells us which person of the Trinity is being spoken of in verse 4. And from Jesus Christ is a clear indication that Jesus was not in view in verse 4. Here's what I mean. This can't be true. It just doesn't flow. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Jesus who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before Jesus' throne and from Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense. And from that, that one, it seemed kind of a, in, what's call it, an incidental phrase or words, is a very, very important piece 
to make it clear that Jesus was not the person of the Trinity being spoken of in verse 4. This is what it, here's what it means. Verse 4 was not speaking of Jesus, but the Father. So let's relook at verse 4 and enter the correct person of the Trinity. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the Father who is, and the Father who was, and the Father who is to come. Did you catch that? And from the seven spirits who are before the Father's throne, and from Jesus Christ. So this shalom greeting is from the Father, from the, and to the angels, to Jesus Christ. So clearly, the Father is the subject in verse 4, and the Son is the subject in verse 5. Here is an overlooked truth, and sadly, I didn't really find it in the commentaries that at least I've come across. Much attention has been given to Jesus' second coming. Rightfully so. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back physically and bodily, and every eye will see Him. But verse 4 tells us nuggets of truth. Here's the drum roll. Did you know that the Father is coming too? And I wrote, Amen. So Revelation is about Jesus and the Father. Revelation is the unveiling of both the Father and the Son. And I'm going to show you this through Scripture as we progress in our study. So the Shalom greeting, this vision and prophecy, originated from the Father, from His throne. And with that, here's another overlooked truth concerning the throne in heaven. Verse 5 makes it clear. It's the Father's throne. It's not Jesus' throne. This begs the question, does Jesus have a throne in heaven? There is definitely a most high throne in heaven. And there is someone who is sitting on it. I'm going to tell you the answer now, and then I'm going to show you how I got there. I've checked, and it wasn't Jesus sitting on it. It was His Father. So from here... This is what I'd like to do. I want to do a little mini systematic theology study on the Most High Throne in Heaven. The reason why I say Most High, as we'll see, there's multiple thrones in Heaven. But there is the Most High Throne with the Father sitting on it. And I'm going to show you this. We're going to do this study looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament. Are you ready? In the Old Testament... So throne, like if you're an actual throne, let's say a king sitting on a throne, it's in the Hebrew, it's kise. And in Aramaic, it would be korse. And kise or korse in Aramaic, it means throne or a seat of honor. So if when you were saying, let's say when King David was here on earth and he sat on his kise, when he was king over a united kingdom, the throne that he would sit on, that throne is called kise. Or if you're saying in Aramaic, Corse. Now, Kise, if you look at all the Old Testament, it's used about 134 times. Speaking of a human throne or the heavenly throne. And Corse was just once, and we'll get to that in a little bit. 
But here's the pretty neat thing that kind of made this mini systematic theology study go a little quicker. Out of the, let's say, about 135 times that throne is used in the Old Testament, less than 10 times, it explicitly talked about a throne or multiple thrones in heaven. So we have less than 10 verses to look at, but it's going to be very telling. So let's look at it to see what it says, and let's see which person of the Trinity is sitting on the throne. So the first mention of a throne in heaven in the Old Testament is in 1 Kings 22. And some of you have, might be familiar with this scene in heaven, but there was a conversation in heaven about who's going to entice Ahab. And Micaiah said in verse 19, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. So there is certainly a throne in heaven, and the Lord, Yahweh, was sitting on it. And he had a host of heaven, and he had some on his right and some on his left. My question to you, who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? Is it the Father? Is it the Son? Is it a trick question? Is it both? But let's keep going to see what else the Old Testament tells us about the scene in heaven involving a throne. The next mention was in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, Yahweh, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So there's the same mention here. There's a throne in heaven and the Lord sitting on it, but there's still no explicit mention of which person on, of the Trinity is sitting on it. Isaiah 66, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you can build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus says, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord, Yahweh. So in this passage, Isaiah likens heaven to the Lord's throne. However, Not much help there either. It doesn't tell us which person of the Trinity it is. So here we saw it in Kings. We saw it from Isaiah. Now Jeremiah also sees a glorious throne on high. From the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So Jeremiah too sees a glorious throne in heaven on high. And he likens it to the place of Israel's sanctuary. But again, he doesn't tell us whose throne it is, nor who is sitting on it. We're going to get somewhere. There's only a few more verses left. Ezekiel 1. And this is the vision of four figures. Ezekiel 1.1. Now it came about in the 13th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I, and this is speaking Ezekiel the priest, was by the river Chebar among the exiles. He says, the heavens were opened, And I saw visions of God 
That's, this one is Elohim. And just so you know, and this is, I, I don't want to do another systematic theology on the names and titles of God, but just a brief mention. When you see um, Lord, capital Lord, L-O-R-D, really, that is, when I say Yahweh or Yehovah, it's really the, the sacred name or the sacred title, of his, like his uh, proper name, his proper title. It's Y-H-W-H. And in short, it's a construct, you know, when it, whether it's Yahweh or Yehovah, it is a construct from uh, the other word for Lord, Adonai, which is where they put the input, the vowels, and you have Yahweh or Yehovah. But just know when you see Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh or Yehovah, that's his proper name. That's the sacred name that even the Jews don't even want to. They, they, they considered it holy and they won't even utter it. But when you see in your Bible, lowercase l-o-r-d, Adonai, you know, it speaks about Lord or Master, uh, but it's not the sacred name or title. And when you, get, when you see here in Ezekiel 1.1, it says, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God, Elohim. When you see Elohim, when you see God in your English translation, G-O-D, Elohim, it's really conveying the characteristics of God, such as creator, king, judge, savior. It's more focused on a characteristic of God versus his proper name or title. Anyhow, part of Ezekiel's vision was a throne. What else does he see? We'll skip to verse 26. Now above the expanse, there was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne. And just a little side note, when it says resembling a throne, it's a throne. Because as we'll see, one resembling like the Son of Man, as we'll see in the book of Revelation, it's the Son of Man, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But it says, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. So he sees a throne, it's, on, you know, it's, it's, in, it's in heaven, and he sees the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upwards something like glowing metal that I looked like fire, that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire, and there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. Okay, now at this point of this scripture, at least Ezekiel gives us something to work with. He sees the appearance of a man in the likeness of the glory of the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah. And then he mentions throne again in chapter 10. Then I looked and behold in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone and they were in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. So Ezekiel later in chapter 10, he mentions seeing a throne in heaven again, but he doesn't give us much in terms of whose throne it is and who's sitting on it. So the best we have so far is that there is definitely a throne in heaven. The Old Testament prophets affirm that. And there is someone who resembles a man in the likeness and in the glory of Yahweh God, but we don't know who it is yet. Well, how about David in the Psalms? We'll look at just a couple of scriptures in Psalm. The Lord is is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. 
And in Psalm 103.19, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. So David too, he sees a throne in heaven, but he doesn't give us much intel. But lo and behold, Daniel, out of all the prophets, he gives us much heavenly intel. Let's see what Daniel has to say about his vision of the throne in heaven and who's sitting on it. In Daniel 7, this is part of the four beasts vision which we've covered at length. But in Daniel 7, Daniel sees the Ancient of Days taking his seat in heaven. Let's look at that vision. Verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Daniel is looking into heaven and he kept looking and he saw thrones, plural, set up. I'm going to tell you right now it's the 24 thrones in the book of Revelation. Kind of did a little spoiler there. But he sees thrones, plural, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Hmm. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. He's not bald like me. His throne, we're still talking about the Ancient of Days, was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. We're still talking about the Ancient of Days. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him, the Ancient of Days. The court sat and books were opened. Okay. In, as he continues in this vision, he sees the Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days. Let's look at that, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Folks, this vision gives us great nuggets of truth and treasure. If you're taking notes, the Ancient of Days is God the Father. Here's another thing. If you're taking notes, and I'm going to show this later, when you see Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh or Jehovah, it's God the Father. You're like, wait, but I thought the Father and I, and the Father and the Son are one. That's another conversation. They're one in unity. They're one in deity. But there's a Father and Son relationship. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son of Man, if you're taking notes, is God the Son. The Ancient of Days took a seat on His throne. The Father took a seat in His throne. And there were other thrones. Here, I'm just going to call this out. In that vision, it doesn't say that the Son of Man took a seat. Rather, He was presented and He came up before Him who sits on the throne, His Father. And to Him was given a dominion and power and glory, that all the peoples and nations would serve him. And in that vision, 
The Ancient of Days held a heavenly court proceeding and books were open. The Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. And as I mentioned, the Ancient of Days gave the Son of Man an everlasting dominion and kingdom. Now let me ask you a question before you flip the page. What dominion and kingdom is that? What covenant was that that we just covered? The Davidic covenant. That's why that's important. Remember, part of our table setting, we're looking at the book of Revelation with an Old Testament foundation. The Davidic kingdom. So in 2 Samuel 7.13, concerning this Davidic covenant, it says there, He, Messiah, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his Messiah's kingdom forever. There's so much nuggets of truth here. This is another study. Not only will the Father establish Messiah's kingdom, but Messiah will build a house or a temple for his Father. And Zechariah tells us more of Messiah's kingdom and throne promised to David. In Zechariah 6, 12-13, Then say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, a man whose name is Branch, and this is one of the Messianic titles or descriptions, Messiah, for he will branch out from where he is, and he, Messiah, will build a temple of the Lord his Father. Yes, it is he, Messiah, who will build the temple of the Lord his Father, and he, Messiah, will bear the throne and sit and rule on his, David's throne. Thus, he, Messiah, will be a priest on his, David's throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. First of all, this is just one proof. I made the statement earlier that when you see Lord, capitals, I said that speaking of the Father, just point to verse 12, where it says, and He, Messiah, will build the temple of the Lord, Yahweh, His Father. The Son is going to build a temple for His Father that He may dwell in it. And in this passage The Messiah, God's Messiah, the Father's Messiah, has two offices, and that is king and priest. So whoever God's Messiah is, whoever the Father has anointed, that's what Christ means, Messiah, the anointed one, it's really the chosen anointed one of whom? Of the Father. So the office of king and priest are determined by Yahweh the Father. Ah, finally, In Zechariah, it tells us that Jesus has a throne. He has his own throne. But where will that be? Jerusalem. On earth. Ezekiel 43, 6-7. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. He said to me, Son of man, this is the place. This is Yahweh speaking. This is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. In context, it was speaking about where the holy temple was built, the holy mount. Yahweh says, that is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet. The Father has feet. You're like, wait, he has a body? But Jesus had a body. What about the Father? Well, what does the prophets tell us? He saw one resembling a man with feet. If you put it together here. 
but the throne will be established in Jerusalem. That's why it's called the Holy Land, with Jerusalem as the epicenter. Now, here's a perplexing note. There is another mention of a different location of the place of the throne on earth. And I've mentioned this in one of our very early on studies, and it's in Jeremiah 49:38. And this was a prophecy against Elam. Then I will set my throne in Elam. Okay, Elam's not Jerusalem. And destroy out of it king and princes, declares the Lord Yahweh. Ancient Elam is present-day Iran, Iraq. So this verse says that Yahweh will set his throne in Elam, in Iran, Iraq. So the Old Testament gives us two locations on where God's throne will be established, Jerusalem and Elam. I don't know how that is. Perhaps he will set up his throne in Elam first, and then it'll be in Jerusalem. Maybe it'll be Elam first, and then when everything comes to fruition, he will set his throne in Jerusalem. That's the best that I can come up with, but maybe as we go on in our study, I want to leave that there for now. I don't want to speak more or add to the scripture, but at least when we try to harmonize that, that could very well be it. But the Old Testament gives us two locations of where Yahweh will establish his throne. Jerusalem and Iran or Iraq out of all places. Like, Lord, really? The Old Testament, and as I'll show, the New Testament affirm that God has a throne in heaven. I've looked. There's no explicit mention that Jesus has a throne in heaven. And the best insight we got was from Daniel's vision. Daniel saw thrones, plural, set up in heaven. The Father took his seat, but Jesus did not sit on any of those thrones. And just so you know, from the Lord's mouth himself, makes this distinction concerning his Father's throne and his throne. Revelation 3.21, and this one was Jesus was addressing the church in Laodicea. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There's my throne and there's his throne. My throne is distinct from the father's throne. The son's throne, Messiah's throne, is distinct from the father's throne. And why is this so? Again, ready for a drum roll? Why is it distinct? Because before the world began, God the Father planned to give His Son His very own throne. I'm going to say that again. When it was just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before He created anything, before He spoke everything into existence, the Father planned for His Son to have His very own throne. Where? on his creation on earth. The Father elected his eternal family as we, Scripture is clear. Before God created anything and everything, he planned not only for his Son to have his very own throne ultimately on earth, and that was affirmed through the Davidic covenant, but also the Father planned who his family is going to be. 
We talk about family planning, right? Some of us do family planning, right? How come we can do it, but God can't? He did. God did some family planning. In his elective purposes, for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, you are showing that you are part of God's family planning. So he elected his eternal family, a bride for his son, and the father elected to establish an eternal throne for his one and only son. But wait a minute. Doesn't the New Testament teach that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the father? Doesn't that mean or imply that Jesus has his own throne? We will answer that in our next study. I'll give you a clue. It's probably not what you've been taught. When it says he sits at the right hand of the Father. I'm telling you, I'm getting blown away from this stuff. And I am seeing with so much more, I guess, clarity, the different persons of the Trinity at work. I didn't know heading into the study that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is speaking about the Father. I thought it was because Jesus is, right? God too. But He's not God the Father. The Father is responsible for everything. Everything. The beginning, the middle, and the end. It's from the Father. And as we're going to see when we continue our study of this book, the Father is coming too. We just read where He decided in Jerusalem to to set His throne for the soles of His feet that He may dwell with the people of Israel forever. Isn't it Jesus? Is that the Father? We'll see. So let me ask you a question. See if you got that. For Him who is, who was, and who is to come is speaking of the Father. I thought it was Jesus. I thought it was Jesus. But remember, coming into this study, told you time and time again, I'm coming and learning it. Even though I think I know it, I'm going to approach it like I don't know it. And I want the Scripture to teach me, correct me, or affirm what I've understood or what I thought my thought was on it. And yeah, I'm th- thankfully with that approach, it's like, oh, wait a minute. And from Jesus Christ, it, it doesn't make sense. There you go on the scavenger hunt and I find out more about the Father's activity and His plan. The Father is coming. Jesus is coming, yes, His Messiah, His Son, but the Father is coming. Our Heavenly Father, He's coming. Absolutely incredible. Each verse we study reveals more and more about the Father's eternal plan. We thank you so much for listening today and do hope that you were blessed by this study. Be sure to mark us as a favorite on Sermon Audio or subscribe to Truth Matters Church on your favorite podcasting platform. And please check out our completely free 24-hour stream of biblical teaching, scripture reading, and sermons from great preachers of the past. Listen now at truthmattersradio.com. That's truthmattersradio.com. Contending for the faith one verse at a time. This is Truth Matters Church.